Father, we come to you and we pause in the midst of a chaotic world that we live in to know, to recognize that your son came and dwelt here. He's walked this earth. He knows full well what it entails. And Father, he is interceding in our behalf at this very moment before you, and we rejoice and thank you. Father, we come to a pivotal point in the gospel of Luke, and we just ask that you would open our eyes to the truths you would have for us this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for in it we find promises of life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. A couple years ago, our family had planned what we thought was going to be the perfect family vacation. Ever have one of those? <laughs> I mean, we had it down to a T. We read the ratings. It was decent, but, you know, it wasn't awful. When we arrived, we were sure we were at the wrong place. And we thought, well, perhaps the pictures of the accommodations we're in are further back on this resort area. And such was not the case. And checking in, they had told us that the swimming pool, which our kids were looking forward to using, was under repair. We thought perhaps the entire place was under renovation. <laughs> yes, and so, as you might expect from the mattress, which appeared to have been used in its former life as a trampoline, and the gap under the front door of the place, which could throw a cat under, not you would throw a cat, but we won't go there. Uh, our dream five-night getaway turned into four sleepless nights, <laughs> and our expectations were shattered. Place yourself in Israel 2,000 years ago. You've heard the stories of one coming. It's been pro prophesied. It's been promised. And you saw that from Isaiah. You heard the stories when you were a kid of the time of the Hashmoneans, the intertestament period, when Johannes and, and Aristobulus and, and all of these Hashmoneans had regained the land that once belonged to the, the tribes of Israel. You'd heard the stories of David and Solomon and Nehemiah. You longed to throw the yoke of Rome off and to get rid of that Herodian dynasty and to have a Messiah. But things start to unravel and that's what we're gonna see in Luke chapter four. And if you're wondering, wait a minute, Hophetitz, I thought we were walking through the gospel of Luke. We are. We've looked a little at chapters one and two and, and really the narrative starts in four and we'll explain that in a minute. And that's where I'd like to begin our journey through Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1 says in verse, excuse me, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus and the power of the Spirit returned to Galilee. Now we've looked and highlighted some of those themes last week. I want you to watch because they are peppered throughout this very short passage. And remember the Spirit plays a key role in Luke's narrative. The news spread about, about him through the surrounding countryside. He began to teach, and that's going to be a key role of Jesus. He's known as the teacher and the miracle worker throughout all four of the Gospels in their synagogues and was praised by all. 
love it. Then the text goes on. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. You remember that town, right? And he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. He stood to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled a scroll and found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord forever. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, the son, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. That phrase is used 12 times in Luke Acts. So all eyes are gazed. It's what a teacher longs for. Right? It even gets better. And they said, today, Jesus says, the scripture has been fulfilled even as you have heard it being read. And all were speaking well of him. All were amazed. They had this perfect, idyllic image of what the Messiah would be. And Jesus is fitting all, the checkboxer. You know, yep, that's it. Boom. Yep, Isaiah 61, he just quoted. Yep, this is great. Now watch what happens. And, and there were some who doubted. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. It's a familiar proverb seen throughout a lot of Jewish writing in the Testament period. What have we heard that you did in Capernaum do here in your hometown as well? And he added, I tell you the truth, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up three and a half years and there was a great famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a woman who was a widow at Zarephath in Zidon. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. This is the only time he's mentioned in the New Testament. Yet none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, watch this, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. The Messiah, this figure that they have envisioned, does not fit their mode at all. And, and it says, they got up, forced him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Uh, in essence, they're having a stoning. Throw him over the ledge, throw a couple rocks over him, kill him. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. This scene, this is the beginning of, I argue, the narrative. Uh, Luke's gospel moves geographically. We started with the census from Rome. We are now in, in Galilee. And eventually the narrative is going to wind up in Jerusalem. This is free, but in Acts, we start in Jerusalem. And where do we find Paul in prison? In Rome. So the focal point of this, what we call a chiastic structure, is Jerusalem. That's always the focal point of this type of a structure. And that's what Luke's doing. He takes us from the census all the way down to Jerusalem. And Galilee is, is the beginning of this ministry that Christ has as we head to this Jerusalem and all that's going to occur. And again, major themes are peppered throughout this brief narrative. It's key. In your notes, if you have those either online or there on your seat, the introduction to the, the ministry is seen here in verses 14 and 15. We're 110 miles from Jerusalem. We're in the outskirts where if you were in Jerusalem in the first century, those living in this region were hicks. They were the country bumpkins. They were the backward ones. 
They weren't sophisticated like us living in Jerusalem idea here. And this is where Jesus, of course, has staked out his ministry. This will be primarily the place where all that you read of in the Gospels and his ministry will occur in the Galilean region. And as we're told, the Spirit leads him. And again, the Spirit will play a key role in the narrative. And we're told that Jesus went teaching in their synagogues. The synagogue was not a replacement for the temple. If you wanted to offer sacrifices, you didn't go to a synagogue. The synagogue was a place for prayer. It was a place of gathering. It was a place of teaching. It also had an economic purpose as well as a political purpose. They sprang up during the intertestament period after the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. We started seeing references to synagogues. Why? We're holding on to traditions, traditions, right? We want to latch on to this to preserve our heritage. And that's where these synagogues arose. But Jesus understood the vital role they played in the life of the Jews in the first century. And in verse 16, as he comes to Nazareth, we see here, as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue to teach. Paul will follow the same principle in his missionary journeys. He will start with the synagogues. And as you see here in verse 17, excuse me, it says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given. The service starts with a reading or reciting of the Shema. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Then it moves to prayer time, and then it moves to reading of scripture. And that's where we are here in this service. And Jesus says he finds the place and he reads from two texts. If you're writing these down, he's quoting from Isaiah 61 as well as Isaiah 58. You say, well, it says where it is written. It wasn't uncommon in the first century to take two texts that are very similar and, and, and combine them. It's called similar laws, similar verdicts is the idea here. The reason the exegetical method which was designed was to connect verses together that had similar words and that could explain one another. It's key. And what you're looking for is a key word that's then being utilized. And in this case, it's to release. Notice it's found here is he sent me to proclaim release to the captives. This is in verse 18. It's found in both Isaiah 61 and in Isaiah 58. And by the way, the term will occur over five times in Luke's gospel. It's key. Why? Because the release is from the forgiveness or the oppression of sin. This is what Jesus' ministry has come to declare, right? Jesus' mission was to deliver people from the affliction of sin and the bondage that it brings. And so in quoting Isaiah 61 and quoting Isaiah 68, he's combining these texts to say, I am here to, to release to free you from your sin. Now, the, would the audience in the first century, even these country bumpkins, understand this text accordingly? I would argue yes. Go a little down a rabbit trail, but you, you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were manuscripts found in now 13 caves down by the Dead Sea in the 1940s and onward. And they're vital to us understanding first century world because the manuscripts come from that period or even a little bit earlier. There are two texts. One 
takes Isaiah 61 and it combines it with Isaiah 52. And listen to what it states, quoting Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, good news of happiness. 11Q13 is the manuscript. It's often referred to as the Melchizedek manuscript. Remember Hebrews? Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the one bringing salvation. Bear with me. What Jesus is doing when he quotes from Isaiah 61 in that synagogue in Nazareth, what he's declaring to them by quoting this Old Testament text and Isaiah 58 is that I am here to bring salvation. This is the good news. And this Qumran document, this Dead Sea Scroll manuscript, which is not a biblical text, highlights this, connects it. Let me give you another, just so you know, I'm not making this up. Another one, 4Q521. You don't need to know that. It won't be on a test. But 4Q521 refers to the Messiah that is coming, and it quotes Isaiah 61. In other words, prevalent on the Jewish mind in the first century, when they hear Isaiah <laughs> 61, we're thinking messianic. We're thinking salvation. We're thinking redemption. We're thinking glory. And by the way, 4Q521 also mentions in connection with the coming of the Messiah is that great joy will be found. Remember one of the key themes of Luke's gospel? Joy. Not a coincidence. Luke is showing all of this together as he highlights what Jesus states here in the synagogue at Nazareth. Redemption has come. Your Savior is here. And this is what he's declaring. And notice the points that Jesus makes. First of all, to proclaim good news to the poor. You see this? The poor throughout Luke's gospel is a symbol of suffering. Now, we're going to do, go back to Luke chapter 1. Well, yeah, I want to show you this. Luke chapter 1. This is Mary's song that she declares in 148. She states... Because he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. In other words, I am poor. He's provided. This is the one who has come to restore us. And when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, he's making it very clear. I am the prophet that's been promised. I am the Messiah that brings salvation. There, there's no missing this. This is why the crowd, after he reads the text, the congregation thinks this is wonderful. Yes, this is exactly what we've understood the Messiah to be. And, and, and then he says to proclaim release to the captives. This idea is, notice it states here, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives who are gaining the sight of the blind. Blind is seen as those without salvation. Zechariah, remember his song in chapter one? This one who is, he refers to Jesus, baby Jesus, as the light, those to give us, that are sitting in darkness, so that we can see. And so, Jesus, reading from Isaiah 61, states, I am here. I am the one that's to help the poor that are suffering. I am to give sight to the blind. And spiritual blindness throughout Luke's gospel is a sign of a plight for humanity. Think of John's gospel. He highlights the same thing, right? This one who has come into the dark world, this light. And Jesus even stated, I am the light of the world in John 8. But notice as well, in this text that Jesus is citing, not only does he give sight to the blind, but he sets free those who are oppressed. 
Again, going back to Zechariah. It's no coincidence that we looked at those four portraits earlier in December. It was setting us for this study of Luke's gospel. In Zechariah, he talks about we have been delivered. This one who's to come is delivering us from the hands of our enemy. Who's the enemy ultimately? Satan. And Jesus said, I've, I've come to set you free from that. And then says to proclaim the year of the Lord. Salvation has come. In chapter 2, Simeon. Remember Simeon we looked at? Look at 29 again. 2.29. All these things, have, are, Luke's tying them together. In Luke 29, Simeon states, let me depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And by the way, he says in verse 32, a light right? And one that's for the Gentiles and for the Jews. And so here you have it. Jesus quoting, reading from Isaiah 61, tying it again in with Isaiah 58, something this audience would be very familiar with, I would argue, as seen in other Jewish literature in the first century. Jesus is proclaiming, I am your savior. I am the one that you have longed to see. All these expectations of, of what the perfect vacation, the perfect Messiah should be, this is it. I love it. He said it's been fulfilled. And notice verse 21. It says, their eyes were fixed on him. Literally, it could be rendered fulfilled in your ears, this idea. Because it says, then they began to tell him as we're going to see, but literally it's been fulfilled in your ears, a recognition. When Stephen was stoned in Acts 7, he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You did not listen to what, was been, what has been stated. I remember my mom saying, are you not listening? How many times have I told you? And this is the idea from Jesus how many times? I, I'm telling you this. And interesting, when they did stone Stephen at the end, they covered their ears. They did not want to hear. And so as Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 and 53, he says, listen, let your ears, you have heard this. And again, as I stated, their eyes were fixed five times. That phrase on eyes on Jesus are mentioned. The phrase 12 times in Luke and Acts I think of the Emmaus Road where we're told that the two on the Emmaus Road after Jesus had resurrected from the dead, it says their eyes were kept from recognizing who he was. And later the text tells us their eyes were opened and they realized this one is Jesus. Their eyes are fixed on him, but they really don't see him, do they? Notice the question they ask. Isn't this Joseph's son? Mm, not really. No, not really. It's God's son. This is your redeemer. This is the one you long to see. <laughs> and, and, and they miss this. Jesus then quotes this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And we'll get to this in a minute. But up until this point, they all think he's wonderful, as we've just read. And, and you get this idea, oh, things are great. And then he quotes and gives two stories, Elijah and Elisha. And it's very clear, isn't it? There are a lot of lepers. There were a lot of widows in Israel. But God saw fit to have his prophets minister 
to Gentiles. <laughs> Not just any Gentile, as we saw here, Sidon, that's Tyre and Sidon, some of the greatest enemies in Israel's history, as well as Assyrian. Couldn't get any worse, right? And the idea, and what Jesus' is essence is stating that the Nazarenes were worse than Syrian lepers and Phoenician widows. It's not a popular message, is it? Especially to one who has been known since he was a child. My kids hung out with you, Jesus. We, we know you when you were in grade school. <laughs> I helped change your diapers in nursery, right? I, they know all these stories about Jesus. They grew up with him. And, and when Jesus declares all this, notice their response. They were filled with rage. The idea is it's all-consuming. And it says that they got up. That phrase is used elsewhere in Luke Acts. It always refers to hostility. When they got up, you're in trouble. You know the look when mom and dad looks over? <laughs> you know you're in trouble. This is the idea. And, and you go, how can they be so fickled? At one minute they think he's wonderful, the next minute they want to kill him. Well, scholars have debated, and there, let me give you three views. A first view is that Jesus' reference to the scope of his ministry offends the population. That it's, it's very ethnocentric. And, and, and so this creates a huge problem for them. Remember I mentioned with Simeon when he says it's a light as, as revelation to the Gentiles and how foreign that would have been in the first century among Jewish people. Uh, you, they didn't sing, be a missionary every day. If you wanted to come to Yahweh, you came to us. We didn't go to you. And so that's this idea of being very insulated. And so the, this view argues when Jesus mentions Elijah and Elisha's ministry to Gentiles, it was so awful that they break out in a rash. That, that could be. But then you have to explain, well, if that's the case, why did he even go to his hometown? Why didn't he just go to Samaria right away? And, and, and I think there is an element of truth here. It's the, one, it's the view I used to hold. I'll give you my third view here in a minute. The second view is that what he does is simply creates great consternation among the people. Um, the, it sinks in what he's really saying to the Nazarenes is that those from Nazareth, that, that I am the Messiah. I'm the one that's been promised. And the full ramifications that they're understanding, that's when they get upset. But that doesn't explain the initial embracement, does it? I don't think of Jesus. That, that view I struggle with. The third view is a little bit more uh, recent. In 2016, it came out in an article, and I, I think... This scholar is correct, and that is Jesus is, it's a challenge to his own. What does he mean by that? Well, the proverb physician, heal yourself, is a common expression. And it indicates the problem is not the skill of the physician, but that he does not apply it to himself or herself. That's the idea here. Thus, the argument is that Jesus needs to apply to his hometown, that is Nazareth, what he is doing elsewhere and be consistent. After all, they too are in need of healing. In essence, what Jesus is saying to the, those from Nazareth, to this congregation is, you need healing. 
just like everyone else has needed healing. It, it, it fits with Elijah and Elisha because they, like the apostate Israel, have not responded appropriately. And thus you could render this phrase, the Greek could read, certainly you ought to say to me, or you could paraphrase, you really ought to be asking me to work here as well because you were also in need of treatment. That makes the most sense to me. What Jesus did is he hit a nerve with this crowd. And he says, you all think <laughs> this is wonderful until you realize you too need a savior. You too need to repent. You too need to bend your knee before almighty God. And you've missed the mark on who I am. And so the Naz those, this congregation of Nazareth are offended that Jesus would state that they need healing and that they need to repent. If you shared faith with someone and all of a sudden they become quite hostile, they don't want to hear. This is the idea I think that's being brought out here. Is Jesus is saying to them, I'm your Messiah. You're, you're correct that Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled here. And, and yay that you can be released. Yay that we can throw the yoke off of the oppressor. But part of this is your need for forgiveness of sin. You can't just have your cake and eat it too, right? And, and the idea here is that they, they blow a gasket. Jesus states there, and then verse 30, again, they try to cruise or stone him, and he passes through the crowd and goes on his way. The idea here is that Jesus' timetable will not be thwarted. He is in charge. So how did he disappear into the crowd? I don't know, but he's God. And so he moves, right? The text doesn't give us a clear example. But what do I do with this? I'm not in Nazareth. <laughs> I, I didn't live there 2,000 years ago. I love the use of Isaiah 61. But what does that really mean for me? In your notes, I've given you three points. And the first of these is a preconceived idea or belief on how the Lord is supposed to or not supposed to work in our lives can lead to disastrous results. Our theology must be rooted in the word of God, not in experience, feelings, or emotions. Amen. It would be similar to going to the ER. You've got a three-inch gouge from a rusty nail, and it's deep. And the ER doctor said, well, first of all, we've got to give you a tetanus shot, because according to your records, you haven't had one for 15 years. And secondly, we're going to have to do some stitches. And you say, oh, no, no, I just wanted a Hello Kitty Band-Aid. That's all I wanted. <laughs> You're not doing that. It's the same, isn't it? The great physician saying, no, there, there needs to be a heart change. There needs to be these steps in your life. It's so hard. I think of Job 42. Here this, Job has waxed eloquent with God and God says, now sit down, Job. <laughs> I have a few things to share with you. And he asks Job a series of questions and he says, I know that you can do all things. This is how Job answers the Lord because God has said, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when these things happened? And Job states, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Hear and I will speak. 
I will question you and you make it known to me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. How many disappointments could have been avoided? How many overwhelming feelings of guilt could have been alleviated? How many soul-piercing emotions of anger could have been calmed? How many damaging sins could have been prevented if we simply rested in the Lord. It's so easy to come with those preconceived ideas, isn't it? Even as we journey in life and you're going, wait a minute, God, this isn't exactly how I planned this. I, I, I hate this quarantine. This is how it should be. No, the political scene, this is, this is the script that we should have written. You know, God allows all this. He's in charge. And, and if anything in the scene at Nazareth, it's a reminder, God is in charge. This is who God is, and this is who we are. And it, it doesn't unravel as often we expect, thank goodness, we don't know the end, he does. We can't control the end, he can. He, he knows all things, he sees all things, he's all powerful. Be still my soul, an old hymn. Listen to these lyrics. Be still my soul, for God is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. Who through all changes faithful will remain. Be still my soul, your best, your heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Listen to the second verse. Be still my soul, for God will undertake to guide the future Surely as the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be clear at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know the voice that calmed their fury long ago. That's our God. And this great scene at Nazareth, these preconceived ideas of, of who the Messiah should be, etc. They missed the whole point that they were in need of a Messiah. <laughs> that they needed to bend their knee. And Jesus, as he declares this text to them, says, ah, but you, you've missed the point. And so, avoid those preconceived ideas. Secondly, God's sovereign plan don't miss this, invaded our dark and messy world as he gave himself for us. The great theologian from Princeton in the 1800s, 1900s, B.B. Warfield says, his voluntary endurance of unutterable anguish was met by us. And I wrote, sinful creatures who applauded rather than mourned his death. <laughs> who were we? enemies of God, hostile to the things of the Lord, according to Ephesians 2. But God has entered time and space. He has decreed it, and he continues to decree because it's rooted in wisdom, it's exhaustive, it's eternal, and it will be accomplished. Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Even Christ's sacrifice, yes, death, was preordained by God. What must have been whirling through Jesus' mind as he quoted, cited, read Isaiah 61 to that congregation? <laughs> you have no idea 
what it means that I've come to bring you salvation. You, you squawk because I'm asking you to bend your knee and recognize your own depravity. I'm going to have to go to the cross for you, you louses. <laughs> right? I mean, you get the idea. I mean, here, you want to kill me? In essence, you will because I'll have to die for you, but not on your timetable. Once again, you think you're in charge. You are not. Acts 2, in Peter's first sermon, first recorded sermon in the, in the church, and I know people have asked, can you keep it that short? Well, Acts 2, 23 says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. That's what the, the church at Nazareth can say. Yep, we saw that. We heard about what happened at Capernaum. It says, Peter goes on, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by your own hands. It was all part of God's plan. This is what he, he designed. And so avoid those preconceived ideas. Trust in God's plan that has invaded our messy world. And third, a failure to respond to the Lord's leading forfeits intimacy with the Savior the joy of God's provisions and freedom from the anxieties of the world. It's the idea of just trusting, just resting. I mean, think about it. These sorry saps from Nazareth. Think about this. The opportunity to have Jesus dwell among them, they forfeited that. Capernaum was called the hometown of Jesus. The opportunity to serve as the stage for numerous miracles. They forfeited that. Capernaum claimed that title. The opportunity to have front row seats as Jesus delivered such messages as the Sermon on the Mount, they forfeited that. That was given to Capernaum. Side note, woe to Chorazin, woe to Bethsaida because they did not respond, but don't forget, woe to Capernaum as well. Jesus states, all the things that Nazareth and Capernaum had got to witness and to hear, and they missed it. The failure to respond to the Lord's leading forfeits intimacy with our Lord. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. so easy to put God in a box, isn't it? Or give him the prescribed formula that needs to be for our life. Or perhaps it's, yeah, he's in a box and it's very small because I only need a few small dosages of Jesus each week. That's enough. And we miss out on the glorious riches of Christ. You young people, learn it now. I don't know how many adults I've heard say, I wasted my years basking in God's presence and learning from him. For those that are older and say, well, I, yeah, I've, I've, a lot of years have, I've lost. Good, what are you doing now? How are you moving forward now in serving him? Psalm 91 goes on to state, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high, who is my refuge no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, not even COVID. <laughs> For he will command his angels concerning you. I'm not saying he might keep you from these illness, but ultimately he will keep you. You are his. Nothing will take you, separate you from him. 
And the psalmist states, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. If you don't know this one, Jesus, he's not just a mere prophet that lived a long time ago or a nice role model for our kids. No, he's more than that. Careful, that's the problem that folks at Nazareth had. They had this preconceived ideas of who Jesus was. And Jesus said, no, I am the savior of the world. And what that entails is a recognition. You are a sinner. You need salvation. You need to bend your knee and recognize the gift that I have given for those of us who know our Savior, it's easy. I find it when the worries start coming, crashing in, the anxieties of life, problems with children, struggles perhaps in a marriage, a besetting sin that keeps you keep going back to who cling to the Lord. Our God is faithful. You needn't presume or or attempt to set God straight. His plan is already in motion. He is in control. He is sovereign. He is all loving. And he is faithful. Is any? Father, we thank you for your word. It's, a, it's like a salve to an open wound we just desperately need. It seems in the last few weeks and months living in this country those wounds are not healing they just seem to get deeper and deeper and band-aids are put on band-aids that entail perhaps I don't know social justice band-aids of well you just got to love one another band-aids of love is supreme be kind when the real healing power is found in Jesus, your son. <laughs> Lord, we thank you. It's in him that we have salvation, we have deliverance, we have victory, and we thank you. Thank you that you are a faithful God who loves us so much that you would give you him, your son, our savior, Jesus. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.